Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from our series, Revolution, a verse-by-verse study of the book of Acts. Here's Pastor Nick. So I used to listen to this band called Dashboard Confessional. Maybe some of you guys have heard of them. I used to listen to them all the time. And they had this song, and the lyrics went like this. It said, is there anything worth looking for, worth waiting for, worth living for, worth dying for? Uh, before I'd ever heard that song, I remember being a teenager and pondering that question for myself. You know, is there anything that I would be willing to give my life for? Is there any cause that is so worthy? Is there any principle that is so important? Is there anything that I believe in and care about so much that I would be willing to fight for it? I'd be willing to suffer for it? I'd be willing to give up everything for it? And if need be, I'd even be willing to die for it. If you look around the world, what you'll see, if you look at history also, you'll find that that is what people in every generation have asked themselves. Is there anything out there that truly matters? Is there anything out there that is worth giving everything for? You know, there are a lot of causes that people care deeply about, from loved ones and family to patriotism to civil liberties and personal freedoms to politics and even environmentalism. There's a famous quote by an anonymous author that says this, find something worth dying for and then live for it. And I think that every person at certain points in our lives, we stop and we wonder, okay, what is it that really matters? Is there anything that is so true? Is there anything that is so important that it would be worth giving everything for the sake of that cause? You know, we live in a culture which encourages us to live for ourselves and to seek out our own personal fulfillment. But the problem is that all of us, in our heart of hearts, we long for something that's bigger than ourselves. We long for something more. We long for something that is worthy of giving ourselves for, something that matters so much that it's worth sacrificing for. And living only for yourselves, I think we all know that and we feel that that is far too shallow. You know, when we ask the question, we long for more, and we ask the question, is there anything that's so big, so true, so important that it's worth dying for? Because if there is, then that's the thing that we should be living for. Today in our study of the book of Acts, we're going to see a person who gave his life for something he believed in, for something he cared about even more than his own life. And as we do, I pray that it would challenge us to think and consider for ourselves, what was it about this man and what was it about what he believed that enabled him to live with that much conviction? Is he a fool for what he did or is he a hero and a role model? The person we're talking about is a man named Stephen. We met Stephen for the first time last week. And what we saw when we first saw him in Acts chapter 6 is that he started out serving in the church in very practical ways. And as Stephen was faithful with those small things that God entrusted him with, he was then entrusted with greater responsibility and greater service. And that's always how it works, by the way. If you're not faithful in the little things that God puts in front of you, he's not going to entrust you with more. But if you are faithful with whatever God has placed before you, in time, as he sees fit, he may entrust you with greater things. So Stephen started out serving tables, and as he was faithful with that, the next time we see him, now he's preaching the word. He's an evangelist. He's an apologist. He's someone who talks to people about Jesus, appealing to their reason and their logic. 
And we left off last week in Acts chapter 6, verse 10, where we saw Stephen speaking to a particular group of people, and they were unable to argue, they were unable to refute what he was saying about Jesus, that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, and that they needed to put their faith in him and become Christians. Stephen made such a good case for it, such a strong case for it, that they couldn't argue with him. But yet, we read this in the very next verse, in verse 11 of chapter 6, that they then secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council, and they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the crowd saw that his face was like the face of an angel. These people couldn't argue with Stephen's logic, but rather than receive what he was telling them about Jesus, they sought to get rid of him by having him arrested on trumped-up charges of blasphemy. So here's Stephen. He's standing now before this council of the Jewish leaders and the elders. It's called the Sanhedrin. And I don't want to ruin the story for you, but I'm going to. He, it's not going to turn out well, right? He's going to become the very first Christian martyr, the very first person to die for his faith in Jesus Christ. Now, at the beginning of the book of Acts, we read this statement from Jesus. He told his disciples, he said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, in Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. What's interesting is that in Greek, that word translated witnesses, it's the Greek word martis, from which we get our English word martyr. A martis is a person who not only proclaims what they believe with words, but they live it out with their life. They believe it so strongly that if necessary, they would even die for what they believe. You see, a martis didn't become a, a martyr by dying for their faith. Rather, the reason they were willing to die for their faith was because they already were a martyr. They were a martis. They were a witness. And that is what Jesus called all of his disciples to be. Not only people who proclaim what they believe, but people who live what they believe and who believe it so strongly that if necessary, they would even die for what they believe. What Jesus had given these people was something which was so profound, something so meaningful, something so significant, something so important that it was worth living for and it was even worth dying for. And Stephen would be the first Christian to seal his testimony with his blood, but he certainly wouldn't be the last. So as we look at this chapter, we're going to consider what Stephen says in response to these accusations that are made against him. And what we're going to see is that he uses this opportunity to tell these people about Jesus. He's got their attention. Instead of defending himself, he's going to tell them about Jesus. The title of today's message is Something Worth Dying For. In verse 1 of chapter 7, we read this. The high priest said to Stephen, Are these things so? And in what follows now, Stephen is going to give his response to the charges that he has been accused of. Again, rather than defending himself, Stephen is going to use this opportunity to talk to these people about Jesus and why they should put their faith in him. They've accused him of speaking against the temple and against Moses, which they say equates to blasphemy. So he's going to talk to them now about the temple and about Moses. This is a very long speech, so I want to give you a couple outlines here to help you wrap your head around it because we're not going to be able to read every verse uh, because it's so long. 
he's going to go back through Jewish history and he's going to go through all of Jewish history and he's got two things that he wants to show them from Jewish history. Number one, he wants to show them that God has never been restricted to certain places. The second thing he wants to show them is that the Jewish people have a history of disobeying God and rejecting the people that God sends to them the first time around, which is exactly what they've done with Jesus. So again, this is a big section, so let me give you an outline to help you navigate it. What Stephen's going to do is he's going to review Jewish history, and he's going to break it down into four major periods, each of which is represented by a major figure. So we're going to see it like this. First, he's going to talk about Abraham and the patriarchal age. Then he's going to talk about Joseph and the Egyptian exile. Then he's going to talk about Moses and the exodus and the wilderness wandering. And then he's going to talk about David and the monarchy. Okay, let's begin in verse 2. Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Abraham is the father of the Jewish people both physically and spiritually. And the question is this, where did God appear to Abraham? Did he appear to him in a temple? No, he didn't appear to him in a temple. He didn't appear to him in any kind of building. He didn't appear to him even in the promised land. He appeared to him in Mesopotamia. That's modern day Iraq. Now if you would indulge me just for a moment, I'm going to go off track here for a second. I love this word Mesopotamia and let me tell you why. Because there was a great preacher in early American history named George Whitfield, and he's a personal hero of mine. In fact, the name of our church, right, Whitefields, on the one hand it comes from the saying of Jesus, which is on your bulletin, right, that the fields are white for the harvest. But in another way, it's also kind of a shout out to this man, George Whitfield, the British evangelist who came to America to preach the gospel and who was the catalyst for what's known as the first great awakening, which is the time when many people in our country came to living faith in Jesus Christ. But one of the things that was said about George Whitfield by people who heard him preach, they said he was such a powerful orator that he could make audiences weep or tremble just by the way he said the word Mesopotamia. So when I read that word Mesopotamia, I hope it just makes you want to tremble and weep, right? Uh, It makes me think of George Whitfield. But here's the point of what Stephen is saying here. He's saying God spoke to Abraham. When? At a time when there were no traditions, in a place where there was no temple. He spoke to him in, in Mesopotamia, in Iraq, right? What Stephen is saying is that God, he's a free range God. He does whatever he wants. He goes wherever he wants. You see, these people's fear was that Jesus and his followers didn't care about their traditions. They didn't care about the temple. They didn't care about the sacrificial system. But what Stephen is saying here is he's saying, look at your own history. God is not confined to your traditions. He's not confined to your particular place where you think he's confined to. Verse 4. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Okay, there's another thing that Stephen's pointing out about Abraham. And that's this, that Abraham did not obey God perfectly. Remember what God told him. God told him, leave your family and go to Canaan. 
Two things. Leave your family, go to Canaan. What did Abraham do? Well, he took his cousin and his dad and he went to Haran, which is not Canaan, right? So what does that tell us? It tells us that Abraham, this man that we revere as a great man of faith, a man who obeyed God, he wasn't perfect. His obedience wasn't perfect. His faith wasn't perfect. And so Abraham's relationship with God then is based on what? From start to finish, it's based purely on God's grace, not on Abraham's merits. God is the one who initiated with Abraham. Abraham wasn't looking for God. God was looking for Abraham. He pursued Abraham. He called him out, and God was patient with Abraham, even when Abraham didn't obey him perfectly. You've been listening to a message by Pastor Nick Cady of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We'll get back to the remainder of this message in a moment. We are open for in-person worship on Sunday mornings with services at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. Come grow with us on Sunday mornings, online or in person at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. Now, back to Pastor Nick with the remainder of today's message. You see, that idea of the patience and the grace of God towards those who don't obey him at first perfectly, that's a major theme of what Stephen wants to say to these Jewish leaders because, you see, these people rejected Jesus. And Stephen is saying, look, guys, you're not the first ones. You're not the first ones to not get it the first time around. Even Abraham failed to obey God the first time around, but God was patient with him, and God will be patient with you too. And maybe there are some of you here today, and that, that's you. That's the story of your life. That's maybe even where you're at right now. You're like Abraham. You're living in Haran with your dad and your cousin, even though God told you to go and leave your family behind and go to Canaan. You know what God wants you to do, but you haven't done it. And that's an important message that God wants you to know, that it's not too late to turn around. He's still ready to deal with you. It's not too late to change that and bring your life into submission and obedience to his perfect will. So Stephen continues on, and in the next great figure, uh, the next major period, he's looking at Joseph and the Egyptian exile. Please go down with me to verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Again, remember the great theme of this section. Notice what Stephen says. God was with Joseph. Where? Not in the promised land, not in the temple. He was with him in Egypt, that godless pagan place. God was with Joseph in Egypt because God, he's a free-range God. He goes wherever he wants and he does whatever he wants. He, he's not confined to particular places. And notice this, some very bad things happened to Joseph, didn't they? Right? His brothers sold him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. But God used all of those things for Joseph's good, for the good of the people, and for God's ultimate purposes. That's something we call the providence of God. That God is at work in the details, behind the scenes, in the circumstances of our lives. He is ordaining things. He is working things according to his grand plan. Read from verse 11 with me, please. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could not find food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Once again, what is the theme here? Joseph's brothers rejected him at first, but later on they realized that Joseph was actually the one appointed by God to save them. They had done wrong. 
They had rejected Joseph, but God was gracious to them and gave them another chance to be saved. Okay, we're going to go down to verse 17 now. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph, and he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. Verse 23, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers. This is Moses, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men and brothers, why are you doing wrong to each other? But the man who was, wronged, who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Verse 29. At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. The third great figure here in Israel's history is Moses. Moses was also sent to the people by God to deliver them and to save them. But once again, they rejected him just like they rejected Joseph. Verse 30, now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Sinai in the flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight and drew near to look. And there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and have come to deliver them, and now I will send you to Egypt. Again, where did God appear to Moses? Not in a temple, not in the promised land, in the wilderness, in Sinai. He's a free-range God. He's the Lord of all the earth. He's not limited to certain buildings or places. He goes wherever he wants. He does whatever he wants. But here's the bigger point that Stephen's making. In each of these instances, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, God came to them. God went to them. You see, you see the, for the Jews, the mentality they had about the temple was that the temple is the place where you have to come to meet with God. But do you see this difference, this contrast he's making? It's the contrast between you have to come to God and the contrast of God has come to you. Because let me tell you, that is the story of the gospel. That is the story of Jesus Christ, that God has come to us. That he loves you so much that he pursued you even when you weren't pursuing him. To the point where he, the God of heaven became a man to reveal himself to us and to save us. So Stephen is speaking to them from their own history to show them that God is a, not a God who waits for us to come to him, but he is a God who comes to us, who passionately pursues us, who reveals himself to us, and who saves us. And that is what he has done in this ultimate way in Jesus Christ. You see, as Stephen is recalling the history of Israel, he's looking at each of these figures and he's seeing Jesus, right? He looks at Abraham and he sees the God who appears to us. He looks at Joseph and he sees the God who is with us. He looks at Moses and he sees the God who delivers us. 
And you know what he's doing? He's showing these people from their own history that who Jesus is and what he did is completely consistent with what God has done throughout history. That God has always come to his people. God has always sought to reveal himself to his people and to save them from the curse of sin and death. Let's read verse 35. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who has made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of an angel who appeared to him in the bush. Moses was a prince of Egypt. He had all the comforts and all the privileges of royalty. But you know what he did? Out of compassion and out of love for his brethren, he gave up his royal throne. And he came down from that royal throne out of love for them to deliver them from bondage. Isn't that exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us? But Moses, here's what happened. When he did that, he was rejected by his brethren. And not only was he rejected, he was rejected with spite. They said, we will not have this man be a ruler and a judge over us. Now, do you, do you get what Stephen's saying here? Do you understand this message that he's presenting here? What he's saying is this. You guys have rejected Jesus. Jesus is the one we're talking about here. Just like your forefathers rejected Moses the first time Moses came to them, just like your forefathers rejected Joseph the first time Joseph came to them, you're doing the same thing now with Jesus that your fathers did to those guys. But see, look, this is actually a great message of grace and it's a message of hope because here's what Stephen's saying. He's saying, even though our fathers rejected Joseph and rejected Moses the first time around, God gave them another chance. God gave them another chance to receive those saviors, those deliverers, and be saved. And they did. They reconsidered. They changed their minds. And as a result, they were saved. And that same thing can happen for you. He says, you guys have rejected Jesus, just like your fathers rejected Joseph, just like they rejected Moses the first time around. But just like they later accepted Joseph and later accepted Moses, now is the opportunity for you to do the same thing with Jesus. He says, you rejected him at first, but it's not too late to change your mind. It's not too late to reconsider in light of all of these things and realize that Jesus is the Savior appointed by God for you. And you rejected him, but it's not too late to change your mind. He's saying God hasn't given up on you. God hasn't said, okay, make your choice. Then you made your choice and he said, fine. You don't choose him, well then you're done. No, not at all. He says God is still standing there with arms wide open, ready to receive you and save you if you will turn to him today. Now isn't that an incredible thing? How many of us, I know it was true of me, but how many of us accepted Jesus after initially rejecting him? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that grace? Do any of us deserve that? That we would say no and that God would still be that patient with us and that gracious with us? That at one time we would have said about Jesus, no thanks, I don't want it, I don't need it, I will not have that man rule over me. But yet God was so patient and God was so gracious that he continued to pursue us, he continued to speak to us and continued to extend the opportunity and the invitation to be saved. But that first time around, we, we said no. But here's the other thing. You must also recognize that there will be an end to that somewhere. For each of us, there is an end to that somewhere. For each of us, there will be a last time that we will be invited to receive that salvation, that grace of God. There will be a last time someday. That's the last time when we're invited to receive the gift of grace and salvation from God. 
And I wonder if there are any of you here today, and that's exactly where you're at, right? Jesus came to be your Savior. He is the Savior appointed by God for you, but you have rejected him as Lord over you. You have said, I will not have that man rule over me. But the truth is that one day, it's going to be too late. He's extending that invitation. It's open to you today, but one day, it's going to be too late. And I don't know when that day is going to be. I don't know. But there's no point in waiting, let me tell you that. Because even if you've rejected Jesus before, if you said, no thanks, I won't have that man rule over me, let me tell you what, it's not too late to reconsider. It's not too late to change your mind and receive him as your Savior and your Lord. That was Stephen's message to them. It's a message of grace and it's a message of hope. Verse 37, please read with me. He says this, This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Okay, the Old Testament is full of promises of the Messiah, the Savior, who God would one day send to set the people free from this ultimate bondage, the bondage of sin and death, and who would usher in a kingdom, a new kingdom, an everlasting kingdom in which death will be no more, where things will finally be made right. And one of these promises of the Messiah was a promise that God would send them another prophet like Moses, but greater than Moses. You see, Moses was unique as a leader of Israel in, in that he had three distinct roles. On the one hand, he was a prophet. He was one who spoke the words of God. On the other hand, he was a priest, right? He mediated between God and the people. And thirdly, he was a sort of king. He was a ruler who had authority. And he's saying that is who the Messiah will be. There's a Messiah coming. You've been listening to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We have three in-person services on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. And our 9.30 and 11 services are live streamed on our website for those who would like to worship with us online. We are located just east of County Line Road and Highway 119 at 2950 Colorful Avenue in Longmont. For more information or to hear other messages from Pastor Nick, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. Be Set Free is a listener-supported program. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support this ministry, you can send a donation via check to 2950 Colorful Avenue, Longmont, Colorado, 80504, or donate online at besetfreeradio.com.